When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast can be heard on the Farm and Rural Ag Network along with lots of other great agricultural podcasts. Our guest today is Russell Gammon. Russell worked with Jersey Canada for almost 30 years and was most recently the Jersey Program Manager for the CMEX Alliance. And Russell is the 2017 recipient of the Dairy Cattle Improvement Industry Distinction Award. Russell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wendell. It's a pleasure to be here. I struggled with that intro, Russell. I don't know if you got that because I, I had a lot to choose from, to be fair. Yeah, and that, the name of that award is not an easy one either when you get to that point, you know? Yeah, it, it was a mouthful. It was. I guess bottom line is you, you've been a, a Jersey guy forever. Yeah, I, I like to think of myself as a dairy person forever, but my whole career has really been centered around uh, the Jersey breed and uh, advancing that breed and improving it as well. But you're currently unemployed. I uh, retired from CMEX at the end of April this year. That was a conscious decision on my part that it was time for a new challenge, time to let some uh, some other people take hold of the reins and come in with, uh, with new ideas. And uh, so I've been in a process I call reinventing myself, Wendell. Well, if you feel like you want to make an announcement to the dairy industry for what you're going to do next, we can do that a little bit later in the show, maybe. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll give you a few clues anyway. All right, fair enough. So you just recently came back from the World Dairy Expo. Yep, Madison, Wisconsin. How many have you been to, Russell? I'm thinking over 20. The first time was about 1982, 1983. Hasn't been consecutive every year, but it is like old home week when you do go back there, when you do have the opportunity and the privilege of going there. So many people from around the world that you perhaps only see once a year. Over 70,000 people easily would uh, would be at Expo over the five days that it's open. Well, and I thought back to the last time that I was at the World Day Expo. Yeah, it's probably been 25 years since I made a trip down there. Do Jersey cows look the same today as they did then? Uh, no, they're, they're different individuals. And in fact, I would say all dairy cows are, are different individuals. Expo itself is also a different experience than it was back in the 80s or even in the 90s. The trade show has become so strong there. There's over 800 exhibitors that are there. There's over 2,500 cows on the on the grounds. And the Jersey cows today are milkier cows. They're sharper. They're dairier. They are probably showing more udder capacity than they did back uh, 25, 30 years ago. And uh, are modern dairy cows that provide solutions for dairymen looking for profitable cows. We used to talk about Jersey cows and about when you knew you had to call the jersey is when you couldn't get the milker sort of between the floor and the udder anymore, and then you had to get rid of that cow. That's not true anymore, though. Times have changed. There's been so much emphasis put on uh, on the udder, which has been a, a strength of the breed. But, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of emphasis put on having those serviceable udders that are up well above the hocks, tightly attached, good suspensory ligaments to keep them there for many lactations as well. So you've seen in your, what, 40-year career? Graduating from uh, University of Guelph in 1978, so we're pretty darn close, aren't we? Yeah, don't think too hard about that. Yeah, exactly. But there's been a lot of genetic advancements and a lot of uh, technological advancements as well. Talk about some of those genetic things that you've seen change over the years. 
in the 1970s with embryo transfer coming around where you could create a lot of progeny from one really superior individual, that got to be really exciting and that was a huge change for the industry. Then we added to embryo transfer by coming along with in vitro fertilization, making uh, calves in a lab, if you want to call it that, taking the uh, oocytes from the dam, mixing them with semen from selected sire or, sire or sires in, uh, in the lab, and then uh, creating embryos, uh, growing those embryos and getting them out there. That allowed us to work with females who were pregnant as well. Embryo transfer only works with animals who are not carrying a calf at the time. So extended opportunities to get calves. Cloning came along. That's had a little bit of impact on the dairy industry. I think the sexing of semen to create semen that'll make female calves a, a very large percentage of the time has been a huge advancement. And then, Wendell, when we moved on to genomics and being able to more clearly identify the genetic potential, even amongst a litter of full brothers uh, that came from embryo transfer, perhaps you might have five full brothers, to be able to identify the one or two of them that really had the best chance of siring superior daughters has been exciting. Explain genomics a little bit. Sure. Genomics, or the study of genomics, is really identifying through, a, through actually just a hair sample in many cases, or even a nasal swab sample, the actual DNA that is in that animal, like which specific genes it carries. Now, in a lot of our process, we don't look at every single gene that's in the animal, but we do look at those that we have determined are most associated with uh, economic traits, with profitability traits, better milk production, better longevity, better body conformation as well. And we're working very hard to say this animal carries these specific genes. So getting back to the, to the five calves that are full brothers, what we're looking for is the brother that got the best set of genes from his parents, the best mix of genes from his parents. They're all full brothers, but they are not the same genetically. Right, because there's some there's some random genetic mutation, right? Random genetic drift, and and uh, if you think about how many sperm cells are are in a uh, in a dose of semen to make that calf, they're not all going to be exactly the same genetics as well, or the oocytes as well that the dam is making are going to be from her but each one of them will carry a specific and individual genetic package. So what we're really doing, we're doing two things, Wendell. We're trying to identify those calves that got the best mix of genes from their parents. We're also trying to avoid involvement with those calves who got a poor mix of genes from their parents. And we don't want to work with them at all in terms of that are going into AI sampling. We want to take the top one or two brothers, or maybe there aren't any brothers from any calves from that uh, litter, if you want to call it that, that are good bulls to continue on with as well. Genomics really helps us to avoid using animals who in the long term, five or six years later, are going to prove not to have good progeny. Right. And, and as, as we roll this forward and we think ahead, yeah. what's the next are we going to be using CRISPR technology to, you know, actually tailor these genetic specimens? No question about that. There's been a lot of talk in the industry about uh, going forward with, uh, say, the pole gene and inserting it into a lot of animals that don't carry it uh, normally. And therefore, you get all the superior traits that the animal's carrying. Plus, you get the pole gene, which means no dehorning of calves, and it just makes life a lot simpler on the farm. Calves don't get a short setback over the, the moments of, of dehorning as well. 
One other thing I'd like to add is when you combine technologies as well, like sex semen on your very best females, and then perhaps using a beef semen on the lower quality females in your herd as well. And uh, there's been a lot of cases, Wendell, in the past where folks have always wanted that heifer calf or heifer calves out of their best cows, and they continually get a run of bull calves out of those cows. And uh, the, the concept of making genetic improvement by getting daughters of the cows you really want to have daughters of, and maybe there's a good serviceable cow that you're keeping around, and she's a good milk producer, but you don't necessarily see her as being a genetic piece for your herd. Get a beef-sired calf out of her, you know, make some extra money on that calf. Right. These management decisions become easier because you have better information about which cows you want to be the future of your dairy herd. Exactly. And you have the tools to make the right ones uh, the dams of the next generation. And so not all of the advancements that you've seen in the dairy industry have been in the area of genetics. There's been a lot of technology changes. Like we're seeing a lot of new things, a lot of exciting things, I think, on dairy farms that we didn't see in the past. I, I couldn't agree with you more. If you look around, and the dairy industry is in a very positive state here in Canada at the moment. There's a lot of investment in, in new facilities and in new equipment and technology on farms as well. I think about, uh, Wendell, the, the change in housing, where we're actually moving back almost to the way cows were kept when they were on their own excuse me, outside, you know, when they were, uh, you know, we have burns that are, are much cooler than they were before, but we're controlling the temperature inside those burns. The bedded pack burns are ultimate cow comfort. You see cows sink down into those bedded packs and it's like being on a feather bed. Robotic milking, I think to me, that's almost like going back to the way the calves used to milk the cows when cows were feral or in the wild as well. And uh, we're letting the cow decide when she wants to be milked rather than saying, okay, we're going to milk at six o'clock this morning and 5.30 this evening. Uh, the cow is deciding when she feels ready to be milked. I think that makes it much less stress on the cows in terms of, uh, in terms of their udders and how much milk they're carrying at any point in time. It's just a way to be much more labor efficient and to really spend your time managing data and information on the herd as well. You know, what if you see something happening with the cow that she's off on her production or she's uh, maybe having a, the beginning of a flare up of mastitis, you can pick up on that quicker. So I think it changes the role of the dairy producer as well from somebody who's uh, doing a lot of physical labor with their cows to becoming a real manager of both uh, the human resource, but also the information and data that's flowing out of our, our systems as well. Absolutely. And that's the one thing I get really excited about with the advances in genetics, with the advances in technology on dairy farms, we end up with greatly improved productivity, but also a great improvement in the environment for a cow and that cow's general well-being. So it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, you have hit the you have hit the nail right on the head, and we're all we all know how important it is to look after cows so that they are happy, if we want to use that expression, but that they're also productive and that they're you know we can keep them healthy. They can have longer productive lives. The best animals can keep going lactation after lactation. They're uh, in good health, so they get back in calf easier. You know, their production isn't dragged down by sore feet and things like that. We can become so such good stewards of, uh, of those cows as well. You must have seen lots of different things in different parts of the world over your career. Talk to us a little bit about 
some of the international travel that you've done as part of the dairy industry? Yeah, it's it's been a real blessing. Most of it has, has been through my employment, although on occasion I, I have taken some trips that you know, ended up giving me uh, information on the dairy industry as well. It's fascinating, Wendell, to see both the differences and the similarities between countries and between the aspirations and the and the talents of dairy producers. I, I think back to a trip I had to South Africa a few years ago, went to three different regions of that large country and seeing like a coastal plain where there was a lot of moisture and a lot of uh, rainfall, precipitation, and how that was a great grass growing area. And then going up into uh, another part of that country and seeing almost desert-like conditions where irrigation was the only possible way you were going to get you know, forage crops uh, to feed the cows or you know, even doing something on the grain crops. And then going to another area, which was probably intermediate in terms of the rainfall, but uh, incredibly mountainous and rolling land, where pasturing cows was a really good opportunity uh, to do things there because it was rolling and it you know isn't easily farmable but there was enough moisture to grow grass as well so you know you see those experiences and you think about uh, the australian phrase horses for courses and how you put things together that fit for your circumstances as well. Seeing the differences even between countries like Australia and New Zealand, who are not that far apart, uh, in terms of their management uh, practices, the heavy, heavy reliance on pasture in uh, New Zealand, and then going to Australia and seeing a lot of pasturing, but also feeding of concentrates as well to, uh, to up the production on the cows. And so same part of the world, similar climates in some ways, but doing things very differently in terms of uh, in terms of management, and then the similarities and the differences between, say, Europe and ourselves as well, you know, or South America. It's been a it's been a such a blessing and a privilege to uh, to see this, and then to start thinking about why we do the way we do the things here in Canada too. And then you've done some other travel that's not necessarily related to the dairy industry. You've done some development and education work in Haiti. Yeah, that that was a 20-year experience starting about 1996, was involved with a local organization here in uh, in Centre Wellington called uh, Partners with Purpose, and uh, we we operated from a a Christian base, and we were in Haiti on a very continuous basis, I would say in those 20 years, at least 20 trips, in dealing with education, primarily because the people in Haiti told us, give us education. We have some skills as masons, for instance, you know, in terms of building. What we need is education. And we actually focused Wendell on adult education uh, because there was a considerable portion of the population, maybe 50% or more, the adult population who did not have the basics of reading, writing, and arithmetic as well. And uh, that was a that was a fascinating experience. The thing that that also taught me about agriculture was the importance of looking after the environment, because in Haiti, probably less than five percent of the land base is forested as well, and it's a very hilly country. So put the two things together, and the phrase "erosion of topsoil" comes to mind very very quickly. And you know you could see tremendous examples of that, tremendously sad examples of that, where uh, after a rain, 
The bay in the area where we stayed in Capation would become completely brown because more of the soil would come rolling down the hills in the rivers and right out into the bays as well. So such an importance on ground cover, on looking after the soil properly, on the, the value of trees and uh, what they can do as well in, in terms of a population. So, yeah, the Haiti experience was absolutely phenomenal. Made me so appreciate the lives that, that we live here in, uh, in Canada or in North America every day with all the, the comforts, if you want to call it that, and all the great things uh, that we have here. So it, it certainly slowed down me in terms of any complaining I would do about life here anyway. Right. Sometimes it's good to take yourself out of your comfortable little existence and, and see what people have to deal with in other parts of the world. You, having done it for that long, must have developed some lasting relationships with some of the people over there. Uh, yes, we did. Some of the folks there were so impressive. They were so highly professional. I mean, they were great friends, but they were also exhibiting to us to the fact that they could do things with integrity, that they did things with excellence as well. When they were doing the teaching classes, they wanted to be so sure that the students got the right kind of learning and that endeared them to us as well. And yes, there's still connections with folks there who were such extraordinary human beings who were kind of like being their own light in a very dark and, and depressing situation as well. And you can't help but value and cherish and, and want to keep learning from people like that. Right, and it's good to have these connections internationally and understand what some of the challenges are in terms of feeding the world, not just here in North America, but in, in other countries, because our task of feeding the world over the next couple of decades is just going to get more and more challenging, I think. Once again, you, you seem to have a pretty good hammer there for hitting the nail right on the head. I recently was challenged by a, a TED Talk, which said we've got to maybe stop worrying or, or try to theorize what the situation is going to be in 2050 and look more short term to probably the next decade to 2027 20, in terms of the deficit we're going to have in terms of calories in many parts of the world where there's a high concentration of human beings. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's funny when, when you see one thing an hour later or a couple of days later, you see something else which is relevant and connected. One of those things is the fact that here in our, our developed part of the world, we're looking at 30% waste in terms of the food that we're producing. Now, we're not necessarily going to be able to put that food on a plane and send it to somebody in Asia who's desperately in need of it. But it is interesting thinking about the waste that happens in the home, that happens in restaurants, that happens as part of processing as well. And not to point fingers at people about it in this sense, but to raise awareness of this fact that it's there. Even the concept, Wendell, of food that is regarded as being imperfect, you know, the carrot that isn't perfect. Ugly food. Yeah, yeah. ugly food uh, that, that I believe Loblaws uh, possibly and, and some other companies have taken hold of and said, we are going to offer some of this food because it's perfectly fine nutritionally. And seeing things like food banks who will take, in quotes, ugly food and make soup out of it. So it doesn't matter what it looks like anymore. It tastes great, you know, and, uh, and those kind of things that we're doing to expand use of food and to make sure that we're also good stewards, you know, in, in a sense of our own refrigerators and uh, not letting food go bad there. I, I do see this as being a big issue, Wendell, because I think in the future, issues like food security, like water security, 
are going to become entirely huge. And and you will hear people who say, we're going to have wars over food. This is the kind of thing that is important. I mean, our population is growing. And I think if we, if we bring it closer to home, rather than that time period that's, what, 33 years away, and talk about even the next 10 years and what we can do there, I, I also think it gives a great opportunity for people in agriculture, in various aspects of agriculture, to become heavily involved in this, to find opportunities for gainful employment, and to grab hold of this issue and say, this is one of the hugest issues facing the future of the world. There's all kinds of other things that we're concerned about in the world, but this one perhaps has been a little dormant for the general population, certainly not for those of us in agriculture. And we, as Canadians, have a long history and take great pride in exporting our genetics and exporting our technology to some of these other countries. And I I hope that that continues. One of the things that troubles me is some of the technologies, whether it's genetic engineering or whether it's some of the other emerging tech things that really, really can help these countries. But because we here in our first world are making decisions about what's good for these people, that they aren't going to get access to them. And I think we need to take a look in the mirror and and say, okay, is that fair for us to do that? And we need to tell our stories and we need to do a better job of informing the general public who's so removed from farming about how these things not only are good for us, but how they can be good for some of these developing countries as well. This is a topic which is is becoming very front of mind, certainly not only for me, but for many other people in agriculture. And I see I see there's two sides to it, Wendell. I, I hear agricultural producers who are on the front line, primary production, who are finding out that they're somehow under attack, both through social media, but not only social media, through their day-to-day interactions with people about uh, you know the way that they're doing their agriculture, that they're doing their farming, whether it be crops or animals or some combination thereof. Uh, I see that. And I, I also hear some younger people saying, this isn't what I signed on for when I got involved in agriculture. I, I'm here to produce food. I'm here to produce food efficiently. I'm here to make a good living for my family. But I'm having to deal with this, and a lot of it comes from the lack of information. I wonder, the second part of my answer is, I wonder if we as an agricultural industry need to be even more proactive. We have some great examples of folks who are using tools like Facebook and uh, and Twitter to educate people of life on the farm. Two that jump to my mind are Farmer Tim and also uh, Andrew Campbell, the fresh air farmer, who are making a very sincere and I would say effective effort to educate people on how food is produced. And we have lots of great organizations that are doing the same. But I wonder if we need to take it to another level and become very proactive if we need a, a, a higher level of action on our part as an agricultural industry to tell the story first to script the situation with integrity, with total truth, but to get that that message out there and say, if we are going to feed this world and if we are not going to have a world that is consumed with challenges over supply of food around the world that are even greater than we have today, we need to adopt these technologies. We need to understand the science and we need to, uh, to get there because a lot of this food, Wendell, in my view, is going to be produced locally rather than being shipped from somewhere else. 
And so we need to understand the local situation and we need to use the technologies that are appropriate there. We also need to use the husbandry practices, whether that be crops or animals, to, to do that effectively as well. And you are so right. We are so good at thinking that we know everything. And this is one of the big lessons from Haiti. Listen rather than tell or listen and then and then work with and then cooperate afterwards and identify what the real needs are and then work on those rather than coming in with our off the shelf or out of the box uh, solutions as well. So I see this as a time where the agricultural industry maybe even needs something like a, a summit. And that's what uh, a visionary leader was saying to me about a week ago, needs a, a, a summit bringing together both consumers and uh, the agricultural production side of things and saying, how do we get an effective, true message that has integrity, that is that is going to be safe for people? How do we get that message out there about uh, production of food and, and where food actually comes from rather than a supermarket shelf? Because frankly, as we've all said it many, many times, there are people you know who think that milk comes out of a carton or a jug. <laughs> and uh, chocolate milk comes from brown cows. Exactly. And so, Russell, I think what you're saying is true that, you know, we need to think about the messages that we're putting out there. I think we're at a, in a bit of a transition period here where there's a lot of new things happening with social media. There's a lot of new media that we can reach out to consumers with. And I think that the next generation that's coming up through 4-H and junior farmers are the people that are going to really be able to take this and they're going to be able to do it with a little more finesse maybe than than people like myself and even people like Andrew Campbell, who I know everybody loves Andrew Campbell. What do you see in terms of the programs for youth that are coming up in agriculture today? I'm really glad you asked that question because I think it it, it is there. And one of the things that I'm very hopeful about is that our rising generation We'll also think about direct contact with people and that looking people in the eye and being able to say, this is our beef operation. This is how we do things here. I really want to show you how we do it. I want to show you the concern and, uh, and care we take of our animals as well. Organizations, traditional organizations that we've known for now 100 years, like 4-H, have a tremendously valuable role in terms of educating those people, but let them go out and be the advocates while you know we've regarded 4-H as being something where there's competition for kids. It's the leadership skills and it's the, the topics that they can get into and the thinking and the development of their minds that they can get into, which is outstanding, which is gonna uh, which is gonna take us forward. And I am heavily encouraged by you know, the young people that I run into who are starting out in their farming careers and they have that list of very definite goals, they know what the next step is, they're communicating with their parents or the uncles and aunts and the previous generation about, you know, what the next steps for the farm are, they're full of energy, they're very well educated because of social media, because of Twitter groups, because of the education that they've had as well, but they are also hungry to find better ways to be more efficient and to do a better job of, uh, of producing food. That's one of my great energy sources is being around some younger people. And I guess now there are quite a few who are younger, <laughs> are starting out in career, but who have a very definite plan and understanding of where they're going and an understanding that they're going to need to be highly flexible 
we will not see situations where the management practices are the same for 25 years as they may have been in the past served us well, but the world's changing fast. The expectations on agriculture are changing fast. And I guess I'm seeing these people say, I'm going to calculate change. I'm going to really look at it and see whether it it fits for for my situation or not, you know, and and getting forward there. So we have a lot of great organizations that are, are working with young people and a lot of good education that's going on for them as well. And we need to celebrate this and we need to support this as much as we can because the challenges of producing food here and around the globe are going to be uh, huge, absolutely huge going forward. And we've got we've to work with young people. We've got to give them opportunities. And I think we've also got to share our wisdom as well with them, the things that we've learned going through the process. And sometimes when they say things that make you and I scratch our heads because they are looking at the world differently, that's a good thing. We have to remember that as well. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, you have to be, I, I've, I've really uh, challenged myself in my life to not get into ways of thinking, you know, that famous line about we've always done it this way before. I've worked so hard to avoid that kind of thinking and that kind of you know, you just keep yourself in a trap at that point in time if you uh, if you keep thinking that way. Yes, we've done things the way we've done them for very good reasons, and we will likely continue to do things in a very similar way. But also, we do have to be open to uh, to new and fresh ideas. And the energy that you can draw from talking to a 22-year-old dairy farmer who's who's finished college or finished university and is back home or who's maybe even a touch older and has spent a year on somebody else's operation, challenging himself and then challenging the home operation about what he learned or he or she learned on some other farm is 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 absolutely golden. It's the best way to to get yourself wound up and reinvigorated uh, about going forward. Anyway, no question about that. Okay, we're going to circle back, <laughs> Russell, because you said that you might give us some hints as to what the next step is here. What are you up to these days? What's your What's your next big project? Well, I've been keeping in touch with the agricultural community a lot over the last few months. Let me, I can give you a very specific answer to that in that about two and a half hours from now, I'll be uh, doing another uh, another uh, call with regard to someone that I'm working uh, on a book on. I, I know myself, I think, pretty well now. I know that I love to express myself through writing. And uh, so we're going to start doing some writing, not necessarily about, you know, my life in agriculture or my life with the Jersey cow. I will draw on the experiences that I've had in in both those uh, arenas to do the writing, but probably a broader set of topics that could apply to people beyond the agricultural industry as well, but using examples from agriculture. So that's part of my future uh, going forward. Going to do some work with some companies. Uh, I did some work last year on a part-time basis with Canadian Dairy Expo, which was amazingly exciting. And we're going to continue to do some social media work there in the lead up to uh, April 2018. And again, that's the kind of opportunity that really gets you going because it's all about future-based decisions or basing decisions for the future that you're making on the technology and the operation of your your firm as well. So there's some of that coming forward. But before too long, I'm going to be off the leash and really writing quite a bit and uh, being edited quite heavily, I'm sure, as well uh, in, in going forward. But uh, there's there's going to be some of that there, but it's going to be heavily 
flavored by both the people and the experiences uh, that I had in agriculture. So that's a little bit part of the future. As you can tell, love to run off at the mouth. So, uh, you know, some speaking, I hope, is part of the future uh, as well. Actually, one of the books I'm considering is about taking the time to really plan the next step as well. And, you know, doing that in advance or when you get to these points and really reflecting on what your purpose is on the face of this earth. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, exciting things in the works. An answer without an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's some really exciting stuff, Russell. We're definitely going to be looking for some great literary works coming out. I appreciate you taking the time and, and chatting with us, and I've enjoyed going through a bit of what you've done in your career and, and some of the exciting things that we might look for in dairy and in, in agriculture just in general. So enjoyed catching up a little bit. Thank you so much. It's been a, an absolute treat for me. This has been the Ontario AgCast. Please go back to Twitter, give us a retweet, give us a rating on iTunes. It helps us grow the audience. Be sure to check out the Farm and Rural Ag Network, farmruralag.com. And join us for our Fran Happy Hour Twitter chat Thursday evenings, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.